in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get, really, is what we worship. Now, they're words of David Foster Wallace, right? He's a philosopher. He's a modern scholar of, of English and creative writing. He's one of the most influential and innovative writers of the last 20 years, people have called him. A writer that has had a profound impact. Time magazine put one of his books on the top 100 books of the last century. His claim, and I think it's actually true, is that everyone lives for something. Uh, That quote comes from an address that he gave uh, at the graduation speech of a university he was a part of. And he said it to these students, thinking through, what are we about? Uh, Each of us lives for something. We have something or someone in our lives that we view as most important. What is that for you? What do you live for? Well, psychologists tell us that as a rule, we're actually terrible at working that question out. Trying to work out what I live for is just a really hard thing. Um, So I've got an experiment I'm going to do tonight. Um, It's a rhetorical question, so don't call it out. Rhetorical means write it down on a piece of paper or keep it in your head. Um, But I want you to try and answer this question for me. What are you living for? Go, you've got 10 seconds. Okay, pens down. I just want to say it in this room. Feels like an exam, right? <laughs> now, on it, honestly, how many of you have an answer written down in front of you right now? Raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to call it out. How many, I promise, I won't ask you to call it out. Uh, how many of you have got an answer in front of you right now of what it is you live for? I want to see a hand in there. See? It's a really hard question to answer. Um, But good things, psychologists are paid to do their work well. And I want to say we need good psychologists. If you're studying psychology, we need Christian psychologists. It's a massive need. Um, But psychologists have kind of worked out a more helpful way of asking that question. And it's by asking another question. And I'll ask in a second. So I hope it's not on the board. No, no, it'll come up in a second. But I'm going to ask it with two questions. And the second one is the one I want you to really answer. But this will help you even more work out what it is you live for. You ready? And again, rhetorical question, write down an answer. I've even put a little dot in your outline. You can write it there. Second one. Ready? What is your worst nightmare? In other words, what thing or person, if it were taken away, would see you lose the will to live? Ten seconds, go. Okay, stop. Now, let's see if the experiment's right, if psychologists are worth what we pay them. Can I see who put an answer for the second thing? Yeah, look at that. See, when we ask the question about what is it that if it was taken away from me, I, just, I can't even consider what it would be like to live, stuff comes into our heads straight away. But do you know what? The answer to that question is the same as the answer to the first one. What is it that you live for? What is it that, that you find your security in? your value, your significance. What is it that if it were taken away, you'd be like, oh, stuff life, I've had enough. That is what you worship. Everyone worships something. However, the claim of the Bible is that to worship 
anything or anyone other than God is utterly foolish. It's foolish. And secondly, more than that, it's eternally catastrophic. To worship anything or anyone other than God, says the Bible, is utterly foolish and eternally catastrophic. It's foolish because if you think about it, if God is true and He really is God, if there is a God that exists and we're not worshipping Him, then we're worshipping something that He made, something that is less than Him. If He made all things and if He's in control of all things, why would you worship something that is less than the one who was in control of them all? It doesn't make logical sense, does it? Why would I make that the thing that, that gives me my, my, my value and my worth? Why would I chase after that thing, whatever it is? See how foolish it would be if there is a God, if He really does exist, if He really made the world to worship something other than Him? It's crazy. What the Bible says is that there is that God. And He and He alone is worthy of your worship. And to worship anything else just makes no more logical sense. As does the second point. To worship anything or anyone other than the true and living God is not only utterly foolish, it's eternally catastrophic. See, if there is a God, and if He is worthy of our worship, and we don't worship Him, we don't treat Him as He is, if He is the King of the universe, the one who is the ultimate authority to whom has made us and, and, and controls our very life, our breath, our eternal destiny, if, if He is that one and we don't worship Him, well, then we're in grave danger. Because He's the one who is in control. He's the authority. Think about it this way for a moment. Just say, um, you decide you don't care about the local... Auckland law enforcement people. You know the guys with the ticket machines? You're like, look, I don't, I don't care about them. I don't, I'm just going to park my car wherever I want. I don't care if the sign says I can't park there or not, I'm going to park there. And you come back a bit later and you're like, that's right, because I'm, I'm going to make the rules. I don't care about law, Auckland, Lockland. There you go. I don't care about it. I'm just going to park my car wherever I want. When you come back out of your lectures, out of uni or wherever you parked, and there's a ticket on the windscreen. Now, you could choose to ignore the ticket and say, I don't care about you, I don't accept your authority, but the thing is, it's going to end up bad for you, right? Because they actually have authority. They can actually fine you. You can go to jail if you don't pay enough. (laughs) So it is with God. He is in control of all things. He is the one who made us, and if we ignore Him, if we refuse to treat Him as He is... In terms of, we don't treat Him as our King, as our ruler, as the one who we need to submit to. If we say, look, I want to run my life my way without you, God. Or if we just even ignore Him, we're ultimately doing that ourselves. That's fine, you can do it, we're free to do it. But a day will come when we get more than a ticket in the mail. Rejecting the true and living God, telling Him, I don't think you're the man has eternal consequences. It's eternally catastrophic. We will be under the wrath and the judgment and the right penalty for pretending to be God. It's treason. We're pretending we are bigger than Him, that we are better than Him. You really want to pick a fight with the one who made you with a word, who sustains the universe by His word? All of us are in a position where we need to respond to this God. That's the claim of the Bible. 
All of us worship something, and all of us need to think through tonight whether we worship this God or not. And in this little letter from Paul, written really early, around AD 50, uh, this little letter that this guy Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica talks of a hope that is possible for people who have rejected this God. It talks of a response, a way that you and I can be rescued from that wrath for, for pretending to be God. It's called Christianity. And it's all got to do with God and your response to His Word. Tonight, really what I want to look at in this passage that Lily read for us is, what is Christianity? What is the right response to this God? How do we worship Him? See, because there are so many different views of Christianity, aren't there? You're like, well, what type of Christianity? You look at what Christianity is portrayed in the media, and you're like, well, that's a bit weird. And you hear what some Christians say, Westboro Baptist Church, and you're like, man, I'm not one of them. Like, what are they going on about? I don't know how many of you have friends, or might even be you here yourself tonight, who says, there's no way I'm going to be a Christian, because of the way Christians have acted in the past, the way they've hurt me or hurt my family or hurt others. If that's what a Christian is, I'm not in. That's why it's important for us to tonight go, what is true Christianity? Because there are some Christians that I'm like, no, I'm not like that either. I don't want to subscribe and say, yeah, count me in with the Westboro guys. No, I'm out. I don't think that is a valid view of Christianity. So what is true Christianity? What we have here in the second half of chapter 1 is a short and sharp summary of what a Christian is and how to become one. The reason we know it is so clear is because Paul holds out this Thessalonian church, these new Christians, as a model of Christianity. In verse 7, he says this, as a result of the message he spoke to the Thessalonian church, as a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Do you know no other church in the New Testament is called a model, an example church. It's not used anywhere else, or at least positively. There are negative uses of it, where they're like, these guys are an example of what happens if you do wrong, particularly in Romans. People are used as examples of if you rebel against God. But the only positive pattern of what an example church looks like in the whole of the New Testament is this church right here. So that means listen up. There's something going on right about this kind of two verses we're going to look at. There's a pattern, an explanation of what true Christianity really is, what true worship is. And it's all about who you live for. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you see there? A short explanation of what a model Christian looks like. And there's four things I want to talk through. Number one, it involves a choice. Uh, They actually choose. Number two, it's a turning from something. Number three, it's turning to something. And number four, it's being turned by something. There's a choice. Turned from something, turned to something, turned by something. Well, first, let's look at the choice. It's necessary, if you want to be a Christian, to make a choice. The Thessalonian church responded to this 
word that Paul spoke. They, they made a choice to shift, to change, to turn, and we'll see what that looks like in a second. See, being a Christian and worshipping God is, well, it requires a choice. It's more like getting married than getting sick, right? Who plans to get sick? No one goes, you know what I'm going to do next week? I'm going to get sick. I'm going to work out my whole week and kind of line up all what I'm going to wear, what dress I'm going to have, what cake I'm going to eat. You know, I'm going to, getting sick is something I plan for. No one does that. But you plan to get married, right? You think through the choice you're going to make. Hopefully, you, you pick a good spouse that you're happy to hang out with for a long time because it's for life, remember? You don't just go like, I'm going to just get married today. No, you plan it. You think through it and you make a choice. You're like, yes. And you make these promises in front of people to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. It's a choice that you make. No one chooses to get sick. Well, so it is with Christianity. Christianity is a choice about who you worship. You don't just get up one morning and kind of look in the mirror after you wake up and go, whoa, you look a little bit Christian today. (laughs) Hang on a minute, what happened last night? You know, I went to bed and now I've woken up with a case of the Christian. Like, it doesn't happen. Uh, or you don't just go, look, because my parents are Christian, because I grew up in a family that went along to church, you know, I'm Christian. Just because you're standing in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Just because you're in church doesn't make you a Christian. You need to make a choice. A choice. It was a choice for this Thessalonian church, this model church, to turn, to turn from the way that they had lived, to turn away from their, their, their current position. Have a look at verse 9. You turn to God from idols. Now, what's an idol? You know, is it one of those little things you stick on the dashboard of your car with a bobbing head? Like, that's my idol, man. I don't know. Or is it kind of something in a house that's got incense around it? An idol is anything or anyone we live for other than the true and living God. That's what the Bible calls an idol. Anything or anyone we live for other than the true and living God. See, David Foster Wallace, that philosopher, he got something right. We all worship something. We all live for something. We all have something we worship, whether it be God or something else. And the Bible categorizes everything that isn't God as the something else, and they're called idols. All of us worship stuff. Things take the center platform of our life. They take the stage of our imagination, our hopes, our dreams. And we end up worshipping them. In other words, we end up living in such a way that if they were to be taken away from us, we'd lose the will to live. Just look at your page. We wrote stuff down for me and, and for you. We're enslaved to this idea as a culture that we'll find hope and fulfillment and satisfaction in in career, in in marks, in in, in achievement, or in family, or in a spouse, or in attractiveness, or romance, or power, or approval, or financial security, or pleasure, or the list goes on, doesn't it? And they're all things that that are good things that we seek, but that we try and find our fulfillment in. If only I had a little bit more blank, marks, grade point average, friends, popularity, influence, money. And what it shows is 
that we start living for these things, finding our security and hope in them. We turn good things that God has made that we get to enjoy into ultimate things, into things that are the number one that I can't live without. And the Bible calls that idolatry. It's in fact what sin actually is. You hear that kind of Christian jargony word, our sin. What does that mean? Sin is pretty much idolatry. It's serving anything or anyone other than God as as number one. See, so many of us think that sin is just really breaking the law. It's an infringement. It's parking for 15 minutes too long. You know, and we get a rap over the knuckles because we've said to the parking authority guy, I don't really care about you. I'm just going to do it anyway. Uh, and we think, oh, well, uh, it's kind of like that with God. We've, we've kind of done a few naughty things. Uh, we've transgressed in some areas. And there's these really bad ones where we, we maybe do more, more bad. That's possible. Not very good English. But, um, you know, we actually come along and we do things that hurt others. And because they hurt others, we think, well, that's, that's pretty serious. But the Bible actually puts all sin into one camp. That's called idolatry. It's called putting yourself in the position where you make the rules, where you determine what's good and what isn't, rather than God. Augustine, who's a, one of the kind of key early church fathers, one of the guys from way back, um, who's written great stuff around who God is and what he's done, has this book called The Confessions. And in The Confessions, he writes this line, and I think it's really good. He says that sin flows out of disordered love. Say it again. Sin flows out of disordered love. What does that mean? All right. Well, let me try and explain it to you. Let's think about it this way. Think about your job or your career. Now, seeking a career, a good job where you can be, you know, beneficial to the community and enjoy working, it's a good thing, right? There's nothing wrong with the job. Jobs are good. There's nothing wrong to desire a job. It's a, it's a good thing. In fact, it's something we, sh- we should desire. Um, jobs are good. Should we desire to succeed in our careers? Yeah, of course we should. Jobs are good. Let's think about another area of life. Let's think about families. Now, a family's good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, families are great. Like, it's great to be able to enjoy a family, whether it's your parents or whether you've got children or you aspire to have children. Is it wrong to aspire to get married and have kids? No, it's a good thing. It's kind of how we're made, just naturally. It's the only way the earth's going to kind of continue uh, is if that keeps happening, right? It's, it's a good thing to have families. Is it a good thing to spend time with your family? You're like, yeah, of course it is. Uh, it's great to be doing that. See, career and families, they're both good things. But when you get the order of the two wrong, it creates a massive problem. See, if I put my, my, my desire to be a great worker and to have a great career and to have a really fulfilling life at work above my love for my family and my children and my wife and my parents, well, it can cause all sorts of problems. Children get left in, in, in the wash of my career, they're kind of like an uh, uh, inconvenience at times because I really want to serve this other thing. Um, my family, my wife becomes, oh, unless you're helping me to achieve this career, then I'm, uh, it's frustrating. Do you see how it causes all sorts of problems when we get the order of the things that we love wrong? 
when I was about 16, I had um, a great opportunity to work for Arnott's, the biscuit company, right? The guys that make Tim Tams. Uh, I went and did work experience for them. Um, and uh, I was thinking about doing psychology and being uh, a human resource manager. I thought that'd be a cool way, you know? Possible job, and kind of... Anyway, Arnott's were brilliant to me. I hope no one from Arnott's ever listens to this, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Arnott's were really great. They're like, come along. Anyway, they put me with the head of HR for all of Arnott's. I was in the head of HR's office for a week, got to hear about what he's doing, got to sit in all the meetings, all of them. Like, the guy was great. And um, it was a great opportunity to see what HR is like and some of the good things of the job. And I sat down and I asked him, oh, do you have a family? He said, I used to. I was like, oh, what happened? He's like, yeah, it's just sometimes these jobs require a lot. I was like, are you serious? And I talked to him about, um, you know, he gets to see his kids sometimes, but there are great perks like, that come with a job. And he, he kind of then told me that if you were going to think about this type of career for the future, you've got to be willing to make the sacrifices. You've got to be willing to take, make the sacrifices because with the sacrifices come great benefits. You know, he was, this was kind of a long time ago. Um, not that long, but I'm trying to do the maths in my head. 1996, that's when it was. Uh, 97, 1997. And at that point, he was earning close to $300,000 a year. And I'm like, that's a lot of money. He's driving a great car. He had all these benefits at work, had a swimming pool. But I went away from that experience going, am I willing to sacrifice life, children, family on the altar of work? If you think about idolatry, the kind of ideas that come to our heads, the most repulsive idea, I think, is these cultures that sacrifice their children to these pagan gods. And you're like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Why would you kill a child? Yet the corporate boardrooms of our world are filled full of people, just like you and me, but are sacrificing children, family, eternity, to the idol of their career. And not just the corporate boardrooms, but those who aren't getting as much as well. How many times have you heard people, oh, you know, on a lower income, going, look, I'm just working hard for the kids. I'm just trying to give them a good education. And we kind of frame it around, um, oh, it's for the kids, but you never see your kids. Now, I'm just using this, these two as an example. You can apply it in so many different areas. But what they're ending up doing here is saying, oh, I actually want to feel like I can contribute. And so, therefore, um, sacrifice relationship for society for getting my children in the position that they are. I'm living vicariously through my children. There's nothing wrong with family or career, but there's something wrong when you get the order wrong, isn't there? And Augustine says that all sin is disordered love. The problem is we see these good things in the world, these things that God has provided, and we make them the ultimate. And we reject God. We move God to second on our list. And if he's second, he might as well be last. Because if you move the creator of the universe to second, then you put yourself at number one. And the Bible says the consequences of rejecting that God, the one who spoke and creation came into being, well, they're catastrophic. And they last forever. Well, these people in Thessalonica, when Paul came... And he spoke this word about who Jesus was, the real word. Not just like, I like to think he's the fairy godmother. But when this Jesus, who was here, who lived, who many of you saw and heard about, he's actually God's son. He's died in your place. 
He is God. You know what they did? They turned from their idols. They got out their lists and said, what are we doing worshipping these stupid things, these things that aren't going to deliver, instead of worshipping the true and living God? I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but often these good things that we love, that we desire, we think they're going to give us great joy and hope. They think, we think they're going to fulfill us. And it seems harmless to be like, oh, what's wrong if I have a little bit of that? And, you know, enjoying things is, is good and right, but we are just so blind as to how damaging they are. See, idols will always break your heart. You serve anything or anyone more than God, it will rip you apart. Because no created thing can bear the weight of your deepest desires and longings and hopes. Think about it, right? If only I had more money, then I'd be happy. How much? Where's the line? At what point do you go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied now? There's always more to be had. At what point do you say, yes, yes, if only I had this academic career, then I'd be fine. And you get there and you want more. Or if only I had this thing, this, this gadget, this TV, this car, this handbag, these shoes, whatever, then I'll be like, satisfied. You know as well as me, you won't. See, to worship anything or anyone other than God is just going to disappoint. It can't bear the load of saying you'll find your satisfaction and fulfillment in it. It will break your heart and rip apart your life. In the next section of that speech from David Foster Wallace, he kind of pulls some of these ideas together. Remember, he's not a Christian. Uh, he pulls these ideas together. He says, anything you worship, other, so he says, pretty much anything else that you worship, other than some spiritual realm, he says, will eat you alive. Now, what he means by spiritual realm, he says, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles. He's like, whatever it is, but if you live for material things, listen, listen, I just want to read a bit out to you and just hear the wisdom of this guy coming from a secular viewpoint. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough and you'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you, um, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And if you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more and more power just to numb your own fear. And if you worship intellect, if that's what you live for, for being seen as smart, you're just going to end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out for what you don't know. So they're profound words from a man that was grappling with the big questions of life. Tragedy is... Three years later, he killed himself. Something or someone that he was living for could not hold the weight of what his hopes and dreams were. He's obviously looking in the right places, dealing with the right stuff, looking for something or someone to worship, but whatever it was he was living for, it ate him alive. All these good things, if you make them your ultimate thing, will eat you alive. For they cannot bear the weight. Just ask an athlete who's been retired or has been injured seriously. 
Do you know, with athletes, when they've been injured, they not only give them physical rehabilitation, but they find them counsellors. They've got key sports psychologists that need to help them through this whole time. It's kind of one of the key things they need to do. Why? Because athletes get their identity from their ability to go fast, to do great things, and suddenly that's been taken away and their life crumbles apart. Not all, but some. Or think about the celebrities of the world. They desire to be rich and famous and they get there and they're just as empty, if not even more, than before they started. They turn to drugs, life becomes hollow and empty. Good things, when you turn them into the ultimate thing, eat you alive. But the great news for these Thessalonians that day that Paul spoke, those three Saturdays, was that they heard the news of the ultimate one. They heard the news of Jesus and they turned from their idols. They turned away and turned to the true and living God. Look at verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. See, that's what true Christianity looks like. And not serving my desires and dreams and hopes, but serving God, realizing that He is the one that's worthy of my worship. I want you to see the all-encompassing shift that this is. What it means is it's saying Jesus is right. Jesus has the right to define every other area of my life, the way I live, why I do it, uh, my morals, my motives. It means giving Him the position He deserves, King, Ruler. That's what worship is. When you see people claiming to be Christian, or if you're sitting there claiming to be Christian, and you're not worshipping this God, you're not letting Him define the way you live, but you're making up your own ideas, that's not Christianity. But here's the thing. They turned from idols to serve, to be slaves to the true and living God. We hate the word slavery. Like, oh, I don't want to be a slave to anyone, Right? But let, let's just wait this out. If you had to choose to follow someone, right? Yourself or the one who spoke and creation came into being? Who are you going to pick? Like just on skill levels. <laughs> like, I can't do that. I can't even organize my own life, let alone sustain the universe. But we go, no, no, I'm, I'm cool. I've got this. Don't need you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> See, slavery to God, service of Him is the best way to live. Serving anything else will eat you alive because it cannot bear the weight. But Jesus can, for He is God and He is the one worthy of our worship. And that's what the Christian life is about. It's not a perfect life. It's not saying you've got to live a perfect life, you've got to do all these good things. We can't. That would just be trying to show that, you know what, I, I can do this on my own. The Christian life is about coming to Jesus and saying, you are the King. I give you my life. You have died in my place and I thank you so much. Help me to make you the king of my life, the ruler. Let me define the way I live around what you say. That's what worship is. And these Thessalonians, that's what they became. Well, what was it that makes someone turn from such a, a drastic turn from the things of what they were serving at the time to this true and living God. What was it that pushed them forward here? Verse 7. You welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. You serious? There's just a message? 
just words. Some message that this guy Paul spoke over three Saturdays and you turned your whole world upside down. Well, the message we looked at last week was God's message, the powerful message that Jesus is God, that his death has actually been offered to you. The creator of all things has come and died in your place. Who else has done that? He's then been risen from the dead. Death, even death cannot beat him. He is king over death. He says to death, see you later. He's the one that made all and he has come to love us and show his love for us in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And the call of that message, the word of God to us is this. He is the king. He is the king. Jesus is the one who will rescue those who turn to him from the coming wrath, from the right and just consequences of ignoring this true and living God, from pretending we're our own gods, from idolatry. (laughs) And this has a tremendous effect on the Thessalonians. What I want to ask you tonight is, what effect has this news had on you? Has it had an effect? How has it changed your life? How will it change your life tomorrow, tonight? Was, I hear what happened with the Thessalonians. It kind of surprises me. I'm kind of like, yeah, they're excited, they're pumped, they're the model church. It causes them to wait. Like, what? Waiting doesn't sound very victorious. Who, who wants to wait? Like, I don't, wait doesn't sound like the thing I'm kind of that excited about doing. Have a look at verse 10. He says, To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus isn't dead. He's alive and he is coming back. Do you get that? Jesus' return is imminent. The whole Bible talks about it. This letter will show us more and more as we keep going through. Jesus could return tonight, tomorrow. God's anger for the way we've treated him could be facing you and I tomorrow. And yet in Jesus, we have a rescue from the coming wrath of God. One who has exhausted death for us. So here's where we see more of the catastrophic consequences of picking the wrong God. For only in Jesus is that rescue offered. He's the only one who's beaten death, who's died in our place. Not only will idolatry eat you alive, it will seal your eternity. Lock it in forever. The God you choose to serve now will be the God you will choose forever. But the thing is, there's only one true and living God. And so our response to Jesus now determines forever. So the Thessalonians, this model church, they wait. They wait for Jesus to come back. They're not the kind of waiting that I think of, you know, the checking the Facebook, the email, the calendar, the feed list, Facebook email, calendar, the three. This is what you do, right? You sit there and you just kind of flick around. None of the kind of the twiddling the front thumbs. I'm a Christian. Yep, I'm just going to sit here in my rocking chair. I love it. You know, wait, just waiting. None of that. It's not that type of waiting. Because this message had powerfully touched their lives. And have a look at the effect that it had on them. Verse 8, this is what waiting looks like. And I hope it blows your mind. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, 
but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. While waiting, this message, this news of Jesus, the hope, the turning from idols, the turning to the true and living God and serving Him because of the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension, that news was heard all over the whole kind of northern Macedonian region. Everyone heard about this church, these people who followed Him and, and the relationship they had with the creator of the universe. And why wouldn't they have done that? Rescued from the coming wrath, certainty, everything we look for in the idols of our life that we think if they were taken away from us, we couldn't live, has been offered to us in Jesus. Life, hope, eternal, forever. So that news rang out. It rang out from them. People heard about it. I think sometimes as Christians, we, um, we can be kind of a little bit bashful about our Christianity. We kind of want to keep it away from the public spotlight and not kind of say to others that we're Christian or not kind of live out the joy that comes because of the hope that we have. But here, this joy rang out, and Paul calls this joy ringing out the model church. If you trust in Jesus, how is your joy? For you have so much to be thankful for. I still remember the moment I was standing in Queenstown. I think it um, was 2007. Uh, Sarah and I were travelling around uh, New Zealand and we'd been camping in Queenstown. We're staying there for four nights and we were down by the, by the lake's edge. It was about 9.30 at night. I'm standing there, we're just chatting, looking out, you know, one of those nice light nights with kind of a twinkly kind of on the water. And, and then this almighty noise came from a steamship. This boom. And it stopped. And then the Remarkables lit up with this massive sound of the, of the steamship, TSS Earnslaw. It just reverberated throughout all of Queenstown. The hills just shaking with this horn noise. And it sent shivers down my spine. I'm like, ah, oh, that is just so powerful, so big. I, just, I love it. Every night for the next three nights, I went down at 9.30 just to stand there, just to hear that noise of that ship coming in and letting off its horn and letting it reverberate throughout all of the Remarkables and Queenstown. It was such a great moment. If you've seen that Jesus is the ultimate God, that He's the ultimate one to worship, then you and I will respond in such a way that will be like that steamship ringing out a sound to the world around us. Not in some weird Christian dork factor, Ned Flanders way, but like, to go, have you seen the hope that we have? Our lives will look different. We won't be living for that pay rise, that next career move, that kind of great attractiveness that we might be thinking through. We'll be living for something and someone else. And that looks different to the world around us, doesn't it? For we're not phased when we lose all our money. We're not phased when, um, sure, it might hurt. <laughs> we might grieve. Even when, even when someone dies. For we know there is a greater hope than just the life of children. How attractive that looks to the world around. Paul says this model church resonated. They rang out with the news of the gospel. And that was known throughout the whole Mediterranean. That's what a Christian looks like. Question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? 
What idols are you still looking to find fulfillment in, in your life? What are you holding on to? That you're like, I just, just want this to happen, then I'll give it all to God. It won't hold you. It won't deliver. What are you waiting for? What information are you waiting to hear? You might be here tonight going, look, I'm hearing what you're saying about Jesus, but I'm not sure. I've got all these questions. And that's great. I think that's a brilliant place to be. I want to encourage you. Come to Explaining Christianity. Ask the questions. But so many people I talk to go, yeah, I've got all these questions, but they never follow them up. The consequences of this decision last forever. Write down what information you need to know. Write down your questions and and, and chase it, for God's wrath is coming. Are you waiting for that point in your Christian life when you feel like it's all good again, before you be joyful? When you feel like you've got it all sorted, your quiet times are right, your, your relationship with God feels brilliant, everything's kind of excellent, and you're just like, I'll wait until then and then I'll be joyful. Rather than saying, no matter where I'm at, God is the one who saved me. I'm saved because of His work. What are you waiting for? Won't you today make the resolve like the Thessalonians did, those three Saturdays they heard from Paul, to wait for Jesus' return, their hope, their joy, and live in such a way that their mouths and lives were ringing with that joy that was coming from serving the true and living God. That is what Christianity is like. That is what worship looks like. What are you waiting for? Why don't you tonight make a choice to say, if you haven't yet, I'm in. I want to follow this Jesus. At least want to find out more about him and, and see if he's the real deal. Why don't you make a choice to stop chasing those idols, to turn from them. You know what they are. God may be prompting your heart tonight, putting his finger on exactly what it is. Don't run. Hand it to him. For Jesus' return is imminent. And hope and life and joy is on offer. Why don't we pray that we would accept this God and serve him with our lives in great joy. Let's pray. Father God, it is... Amazing to be able to stand and see what you have done for us. Those words we sung at the beginning of tonight that freely you gave your life for us. The creator of all things that the king of the universe has laid down his life that we might be forgiven. Lord, we admit that so often we chase after things that cannot provide, that we treat other people and other things as the ultimate thing and reject you, Lord, we know that because of that, we do deserve your just, your just wrath. So we pray that tonight, Lord, you would show us those areas in our lives, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, and you would help us to turn, to continually turn from those things and run to the joy and hope of salvation in your Son. We ask, Lord, for those of us here tonight that are thinking through whether or not to follow Jesus.
we ask that you would show them clearly who you are and that we might be so captured by what Jesus has done, by the claims of history and scripture, that tonight we stop waiting and we come and consider the claims of Jesus. Father, we are so thankful for your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.